This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. There's a big push underway to rethink how the U.S. Interior Department does business. The agency oversees a fifth of all land in the U.S., including places like Rocky Mountain National Park. And the Trump administration is putting a renewed emphasis on energy development over environmental concerns. Juliet Alprin is the senior national correspondent for The Washington Post. She spoke with Nathan Heffel about the latest policy shifts. Juliet, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thanks so much. We're going to get into more details about some of the changes which pull back on climate and conservation policy. But first, why is there this desire to rethink how the Interior Department works? What it comes down to is Ryan Zinke, the Interior Secretary, who likes to talk about the fact that he spent more than two decades as a Navy SEAL, has come into the department and wants it to operate more like how Naval SEAL units operate. He wants to make sure that there's more coordination. It's a fairly decentralized department compared to some others. And so he's come to the conclusion that it needs to change and you need to kind of break down some of the silos between different bureaus and offices in interior and instead organize it according to geography. And so that's what he's trying to do right now. So in terms of decentralized, moving it out of Washington and things like that, uh, explain that a bit more. Yeah. So one of the things he has repeatedly emphasized is that he thinks that not only does it need to operate differently in the field, but more importantly, it's a 70,000 employee person agency and that he wants to take many of the men and women who are now working in Washington and move them out, particularly to the West, where, of course, a, a lot of the public land is located, including in Colorado. And in addition, even in the West, he wants to move people from sometimes big cities, including, say, Denver or Albuquerque, into smaller cities and areas, all under the rubric of kind of putting people in the field. Now, it's worth noting, and and I know we're going to discuss this, that Secretary Zinke at the same time is centralizing some of the decision-making that's happening in Washington. So in other words, he wants people out on the ground, but some of the decisions that he wants made, particularly on issues such as climate change and, and so forth, are being driven largely out of headquarters. So there are kind of two things happening at the same time. And Zinke's proposal would divide up the U.S. into these 13 regions that would be defined by watersheds and geographic things uh, rather than, than, than states. Isn't that right? Yes. And so that is a certainly big change for what we've seen in the department's, you know, more than 160-year history. And it it also it definitely will raise some concerns among lawmakers. I was checking in with Western senators, and I think you're, you're going to see some concerns, certainly from Democrats and possibly from some Republicans, because it essentially divides many states. And that's something that hasn't been done before and, and could certainly raise some issues as well well as how they're treating, for example, tribal areas. And this is the largest reorganization if it goes, in fact, as as the secretary wants in 168 years. How is this playing out, like you said, with Republicans and Democrats, because it's a massive change to a huge government agency? 
any of these changes have to be authorized by Congress and are sure to face resistance. It's worth noting that, for example, Secretary Zinke has been consulting with some key Republicans, including Colorado Senator Cory Gardner, but he hasn't shared any of these plans with the Democrats. So, for example, my colleague Daryl Fears and I were the first people to detail this plan to many of the lawmakers because they had not seen it yet. Just the very fact that he has set this in motion without consulting in advance with Democrats is is sure to spark some level of pushback. And then going forward, certainly there'll be ongoing discussions that he will have to have with lawmakers of both parties to see if they will approve this. I have covered multiple reorganization efforts in the past, and it's extremely difficult to ever have these succeed. The last time we really saw something happen in terms of a major federal reorganization, it was after the September 11th, 2001 attacks, when there was certainly bipartisan support for change the way we have a national security apparatus. Now, there's also been talk about moving the headquarters for the Bureau of Land Management, which is part of the Interior Department, out of Washington, D.C. Does this still fit into Secretary Zinke's vision? It could potentially fit in its in his vision, and it's certainly something that interior officials like to talk about because it's something where you've seen significant Democratic support, particularly on the part of Colorado, obviously. So when you have a, a bill introduced by Cory Gardner and Scott Tipton, uh, another Republican from Colorado, which doesn't identify, for example, Colorado as the destination, but says that you would move the Bureau of Land Management's headquarters to one of a dozen Western states. And that has attracted some bipartisan support, particularly some Democratic support from the Colorado delegation. And so this could be part of the plan, but it's not guaranteed both because, again, it's been left open, whether that would be in a place like Denver, whether it would be Salt Lake City, and also just because it's unclear part of what Zinke is talking about at this point is in fact moving beyond some of a main city like Denver to put people in the ground somewhere else. There, there has been a quite, a, a quite a bit of other news about the Interior Department as well. Earlier this week, you've reported that there is a new screening process that the agency will use to approve grants. What's this new approach and, and how is it different from what's happening now? What Secretary Sinke has put in place is a fairly rigorous review process for any interior grant totaling at least $50,000 that goes to either a nonprofit group that legally can engage in advocacy or a university. By our count, that means that more than 4,000 grants will be reviewed this fiscal year. And there's no real precedent for this ever happening at the Interior Department. Now, the Environmental Protection Agency under President Trump instituted a similar review last year. And initially, Interior was looking at grants of 100,000 or more. And so what this shows is that the Interior Department is somewhat skeptical of the funding priorities that were put in place by the previous administration. And rather than, for example, having career officials implement the vision of political appointees, which is how this has traditionally been done, they are now demanding uh, political sign-off on every single grant that's of this size. Now, Interior Secretary uh, Zinke outlined his top 10 priorities for grants in late December. And at the top of this list is this goal to create, quote, a conservation stewardship legacy, second only to Theodore Roosevelt. 
How does he plan to do all of this? Secretary Zinke, when asked about this and when his aides have been asked about it, does not specify exactly what it would mean to to achieve, as you mentioned, a conservation legacy, second only to Teddy Roosevelt. What he certainly emphasizes is access to public land, expanding access for hunting and fishing and other forms of recreation. And that's really what he's identified as as what he's done under this category so far. Uh, It certainly does not mean, for example, putting public land off limits to development because Mm. that is something that he has supported. That's what his number two priority. And so it's it's a little unclear how he will define this, but certainly it is it is a phrase that he has invoked multiple times, which then of course Democrats have used to question to what extent he is following in Teddy Roosevelt's footsteps. In late December, the Interior Department quietly revoked a handful of policies uh, on conservation and climate change. Uh, Why did they do that and and, and why was it so quiet? I found out about this just a few days ago and and reported on it once I got a hold of the documents and that was the first time they had been publicized. It's very clear that climate change has become a hot-button issue in the Interior Department. Time and time again, what we have seen is policies put in place by the Obama administration to elevate concerns about climate change have been rescinded under this secretary and this president. What's interesting, particularly in this case, is these are, you know, fairly wonky manuals that have specific guidance for how to deal with climate change. And ironically, the first manual and directive on this point was published at the very end of the George W. Bush administration. Some of his top officials, including the secretary at the time, Dirk Kempthorne, and his number two, Lynn Scarlett, had instructed their staffers to factor climate change into important decisions, to take science into account. And so what is interesting is that essentially what the secretary and his deputies decided to do very quietly is simply bring back a much shorter manual uh, that was published at the very end of the George W. Bush administration and jettison, you know, the eight years of work that had been done under the Obama administration. And, and there have been a lot of environmental policy changes since President Trump took office, and not just at the Interior Department. Uh, Trump declared early on in his administration that climate change is no longer a national security threat. That was something President Obama listed as as, as a threat there in 2016. What other changes have you been focusing on uh, in the Trump White House? We have seen a slew of changes. So one one other decision that was made by the president himself was to pull the United States out of the Paris Climate Agreement, which had been forged in 2015. Now, it'll take several years to accomplish this, but essentially what the president announced, this was in June of last year, is that the U.S. will no longer commit to reducing its greenhouse gases by a certain target. Then when you look on the agency level, there have just been a slew of decisions, again, as you mentioned, being made in different agencies. So you've seen everything from, for example, at the Environmental Protection Agency, the administrator there, Scott Pruitt, has undertaken the revocation of what's called the Clean Power Plan, the first ever national limit on greenhouse gas emissions from existing power plants. He's pulled back 
on climate measures. Uh, he has had he had one of his political appointees who now again is reviewing grants and essentially eliminating and revoking any grant that was specifically tied to climate change. And so, you know, we see this in in other departments as well. The energy department is shifting its orientation to promote, for example, coal-fired power plants and uh, natural gas plants over renewable energy in many instances. So it's really it's really one of the clearest policy trajectories we've seen of the Trump administration so far. News on this uh, issue seems to be moving every single day. I know there have been multiple stories you have you've put out over the past couple of weeks. Uh, what are you keeping your eye on now? What's the next thing that people should be uh, keeping their eye on? One of the things that I'm really trying to look at is what is the practical impact of these policy changes? In other words, you know, as, for example, someone like Interior Secretary Zinke or EPA Administrator Pruitt are doing their best to undo these regulations and boost the production of, for example, fossil fuels in the United States, I'm always looking to see, well, first of all, what is the private sector reaction to this? To what extent are people willing to invest in these fossil fuels or do they see this as potentially a long-term you know, losing proposition? What's happening in the legal landscape because many of these things are subject to court challenge? And then finally, you know, how is this playing out in the real world? What are some of the impacts, whether they're economic or environmental, whether it's out in Colorado, uh, particularly a number of places at West or elsewhere in the country? Those are some of the really important questions that I think we need to answer in the months ahead. Juliet, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much, Nathan. That's Juliet Alprin speaking with CPR's Nathan Heffel. She's the senior national affairs correspondent for The Washington Post. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. And I'm Ryan Warner. Time for listener feedback in Loud and Clear. We talked about age discrimination the other day. A Denver woman started a social media campaign to draw attention to the problem. It features older workers holding small dry erase boards with quotes written on them. I'm not overqualified. I'm experienced. Isn't that a good thing? My practical knowledge is better than someone fresh out of college. Another one is, three decades of public school teaching will make me an asset, not a risk or liability. At the same time, we asked on the CPR News Facebook page for your experiences, and there was a torrent of responses. Nikki Chimino of Parker writes, I had a recruiter tell me to remove every job off my resume that was older than 10 years ago and not to show my graduation day, just my school and degree. Also to do the same thing on my LinkedIn and Indeed profiles. And what do you know? It worked. I suddenly started getting bites that I wasn't able to get before, and I ultimately landed a new job. Randy Sneed of Denver was on the hiring side for a sporting goods company. He says they were opening a new store and had hundreds of jobs to fill. Quoting here, I was told by a manager to first toss out any resume that had poor penmanship. Then, in the face-to-face interview, call anyone that didn't look like they could stand for eight hours. I hired anyone that was experienced or skilled in firearms, hunting, and optics. Later, after the store was set and the grand opening behind us, 
I was chastised for hiring a woman and a gentleman that were older and overweight. I quit and retired the following week and never looked back. And this from Jamie Park of Denver. Sadly, age discrimination is real and very widespread. She says there was a manager at work who shamelessly told her he never hires anyone older than he is. He was only in his mid-30s. And Brooke M. Allen adds, I'm finding this even at 36. Thanks for sharing your experiences. There are so many conversations happening at CPR News and not just on the radio. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. All the ways to connect with us are posted at CPR.org connect. Andrea, back to you. Thanks, Ryan. In many countries around the world, children of inmates can live in prison with their parents. A new novel for young adults paints a haunting picture of what that's like. It takes place in the late 1990s, and it's about two school-aged children who share a cell with their father in a Bolivian prison. The book is called An Uninterrupted View of the Sky by Colorado author Melanie Crowder. And Melanie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. What first brought your attention to children who live in prison with their parents? Well, actually, I was finishing up my undergrad in British Columbia, and a professor of mine mentioned a volunteer opportunity to go to Bolivia and to work in a child care facility that actually worked with these kids. We had enrichment opportunities. There was limited medical care. We gave them meals, and we basically just provided them an opportunity to be somewhere other than the prison after school hours. And I decided that's what I wanted to do with my summer. So I spent the summer of 99 in Cochabamba, Bolivia. Mm. And I should say, I read your book not knowing it was for young adults. So it's really a book for everyone. Um, The children, Francisco and Pilar, live in a fairly comfortable life. They have a comfortable life before their dad goes to prison. Tell us about them. Yeah. So Francisco is a 17-year-old boy. He's, I mean, he's into his life. He plays football with his friends. He hangs out. He's got a plan for where his life is going to go. And when his father gets put in prison, all of a sudden, everything that he thought his life was going to be completely flips around. And it's a huge adjustment for him to take what he thought his life was going to be. And all of a sudden, he's in charge of protecting himself and his little sister and even his father in what is not an ideal environment for them to be having their childhood. And in terms of uh, the mother and father, um, they come from very different backgrounds. And in some ways, that divides the family. Can you talk about that? It does. It's actually a really unique situation because one of the things I learned by talking to people who are from Bolivia is that it's this intensely stratified society. Um, Bolivia has the highest proportion of indigenous people in the region. And so there's this division between what were um, the descendants of the colonial uh, people who came to Bolivia and then what the indigenous people who generally lived up in the high plains and then have migrated down. And it's created a a fascinating interplay of different cultures. And Francisco's mother is from an upper-class family, and his father is of indigenous heritage. And their family was a harmonious one in some ways, and in some ways there were tensions until this, um, this incident happened, and he was arrested, and he was put in prison, and it broke the family, sadly. And and talk about the father. He's a taxi driver. (laughs) Why does he get in trouble? So 
he got in trouble because he was driving down the road and he ran out of gas and he was carrying, you know, a can to go get more gas. Um, he was walking down the side of the highway and actually heard a story of something that happened exactly like this to an inmate that I visited when I was in Bolivia. There's this law that was passed called Law 1008, or La Ley Mio which criminalized the production of coca, which is a leaf, this origin leaf of cocaine, but in and of itself, it's not a drug. It's a mild stimulant like coffee. Mm. So... Uh, People could be arrested for cultivation of coca. They could be arrested for uh, possession of coca paste. Or they could be arrested for basically anything that could possibly be connected to the coca trade. So this is what happened to Francisco's father. And he was arrested, put in prison uh, without a sentence and without any expectation of a trial anytime soon. So he ends up in prison. The kids join him. The mother has left the family. Um, I'd love you to read the passage from the book where Francisco describes the prison. Uh, It's on page 25. Sure. I don't know what I thought a men's prison would look like, but not this. The center of the place is a courtyard packed with people. Men talk in groups and play cards and carve little wooden toys. It's loud and really crowded. There are no guards inside, only prisoners. Plastic tables bake in the sun and a basketball hoop without a net hangs from one of the balconies. On all four sides of the courtyard are stalls and little stores that sell toilet paper and toothpaste, or picante de pollo with junio. In the empty spaces, mattresses are propped up against the walls. A voice crackles over the intercom calling a prisoner to the guard station. The sounds of saws and hammers echo out of the hallways that peel away from the center of the prison. All around us are cells. Some of them are so small you have to crawl to get inside. Or they're stacked on top of each other and you have to climb a rickety ladder to get in. Some are just pieced together slabs of junk that look like a tower of cardboard boxes. And um, early on they have to sleep outside. um, And and then they actually get a cell to share um, that they have to pay for. How true to real life is your depiction of the place? It's true. I sourced materials from uh, several documents that have been published by people who have an eye on human rights in the area and specifically an eye on the children who are growing up in these prisons. Additionally, I visited San Sebastián prison, the women's prison, when I was there in the 90s. And of course, filtering facts through decades past memories is difficult, but I was able to check my memory against photographs that I would find and against uh, historical documents. And I was able to actually consult with several people in Bolivia who are well informed about the prison system there. And how common is it for kids to live in Bolivian prisons now? So children up to the age of six are allowed, according to law, to live with a family member in prison if there is no other family member outside of the prison who can take care of them and see to their welfare. Um, There are hundreds or thousands of children who are currently living in Bolivian prisons with their incarcerated parents. And the parents feel that While the environment of the prison may be difficult and while there may be elements of it that are dangerous, they feel like it's 
more important to be able to stay together as a family and to have the children someplace where at least the parents can keep an eye on them and protect them the best they can, as opposed to out on the street without any guidance from any adult. A recent article in the New York Times pointed to children living in prisons in Afghanistan. That's true in other countries, too. And very young children um, sometimes live in prisons in the U.S., What's the thinking? You mentioned that maybe it's better for some kids or the parents feel that. Is the practice being challenged at all? So this was something that was actually a surprise to me in my research. I thought when I had been in Bolivia, I thought, oh, this is just an exception. This is just the way that it's done in this particular country. But the truth is, is that it's commonplace in many places in the European Union, in Australia, around the world. The United Nations has... Um, delivered guidance that simply says that the best interest of the child must be first in any consideration, whether that child is allowed to live with a parent in prison or not. And so it's simply a matter of weighing um, what's best, both for the mother and for the child. And let's go back to the book for a minute. The girl Pilar finds herself in danger in the prison. She's Mm -hmm. targeted by male inmates. And Pilar and Francisco decide to leave for the Andean Mountains, where their grandparents live. You paint this as a really idyllic life, even though the grandparents live in poverty. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that region. What is it about life there that makes it so idyllic? Mm -hmm. So the Altiplano is the high plains that stretch between the Andes, and it's astonishingly beautiful. It's a place that has uh, maintained the cultural traditions and religious practices of millennia. And the indigenous people who live there um, hold to their truths and to their way of life. And um, I was so fortunate to be able to visit this area. It's of extremely high elevation. We think of our, you know, highest 14,000 peaks here in Colorado, and that's how high some of the passes are between mountain peaks. It's extremely high elevation, so it's a, it's a difficult subsistence lifestyle, but it's beautiful. When I was speaking to one of my, who, someone who's now become a friend of mine, a Bolivian Coloradan, she was saying, you know, everybody says, you know, Bolivia is the poorest country in South America, but they're just talking about money. They're not thinking about culture. They're not thinking about the richness of our history that has carried on since before the Inca, before the Spaniards. The father is a dreamer in this story. He's a poet, and he writes poetry to his children. Francisco also has a talent for poetry. Why did you weave poetry into the story? Mm-hmm. So when I first started to conceptualize this story, it was something that I always knew that I I wanted to write about in some way, but I didn't know how. As a fiction writer, I can't begin until I have that gem of inspiration. So I had a few things. I had the setting. I had um, this boy. I didn't know his name was Francisco yet, but I knew he was just full of anger on the inside. I knew that he was the kind of person who thinks with his fists. And I knew his father was the antithesis. His father was this gentle soul who was a taxi driver who wrote poetry in between (laughs) his clients who came into his car. And I just felt like it was a really beautiful way to show that even though there's this very difficult situation that they found themselves in in prison, even though it was an extreme strain on the family, 
there's still beauty and there's still this emotional vulnerability and this connection between those two characters. Just to wrap up, there's a Bolivian community in Colorado. It's pretty small. And you checked your work with them to make sure it was accurate before the book was published. Did you get anything big wrong culturally? (laughs) Uh, Little things here and there. I think maybe I've blocked out the worst things that they corrected from me. But there there were little things. Like I had written in the culture I had I had written that the characters were eating beans all the time because my memory of my time in Bolivia we had beans with nearly every dinner and I found out after I was corrected by one of my friends who vetted the story for me here in Colorado that no that is a Brazilian tradition and my host family who I lived with the mother was Brazilian and so that's why I had that perception which was completely incorrect and I was given a proper education in the history of the potato and the heritage of the potato for Bolivian people. Melanie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Melanie Crowder is the author of An Uninterrupted View of the Sky, a young adult novel about two children living with their father in a Bolivian prison. We'll be back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Clichés are the comfort food of speech, says CU Boulder lexicographer Orrin Hargraves. They're easy, familiar. Hargraves is the author of It's Been Said Before, a guide to the use and abuse of clichés. He spoke with Ryan Warner. Orrin, welcome to the program. Well, thanks, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to start with a question you pose early on in the book. Why pick on cliches? Well, everyone despises them, for one thing. Uh, Even though we all use them, you never hear anyone say a good thing about cliches. So I began with the idea that I could be a cliche killer. I could point out all these awful cliches that people use, and realizing how terrible they were, people would stop. But then (laughs) I found that I couldn't stop using them either, and neither could anyone else. So... uh, The book took a different direction of trying to get a grip on when cliches work and when they don't. That is to say there can be positive uses of cliches. Yes, and I think we're almost inclined not to call an expression a cliché if it's successful. Because cliches, it it, it has only negative associations, right? No No one ever says, oh, I love all the cliches you use. Right. Uh, when we like a cliché, we might call it, you know, a maxim or, or an idiom or, or, an idiom. or perhaps even a, even a proverb. Uh, yeah. When you say th- something is an idiom, that's based on how its meaning is derived. In other words, is the phrase more than the sum of its parts? Uh, classic examples are uh, kick the bucket or paint the town red. If you take apart the phrase paint the town red and think about the meaning of paint in the town and red – None of those have anything to do with the meaning of the phrase. Without, right? Yeah, with going to town. Uh, and, and having a good and time. And having a good example. time. A cliche, on the other hand, is a question about usage. Are you using a, an expression in a way that people consider trite, hackneyed, uncreative, uh, lacking originality, not quite hitting the meaning that they want? And what's an example of that for you? Uh, one that I think is invariably a cliche that you can't get away with using in the proper way is uh, at the end of the day. Uh, <laughs> okay. Because people use that as a kind of indication in speech to to move on to another point. But It's almost meaningless. That it is, is if, yeah. the, if it were dropped from the beginning of the phrase, the phrase would perhaps even have more power. 
That's right. Yeah. yeah. And and that's often a really good sign of cliche. If you take it out of the sentence and then read the sentence and find that you have just as much meaning, then you've probably isolated a cliche. You hinted at this already, that you took a, a mathematical I- approach to this project, scoring cliches from one to five. Five, am I right, meaning that they're used most frequently and one least frequently. On the same page was a five. So it was at first glance and more or less. Uh, but why was it important to assign, you know, scores to this? My idea was to capture the cliches that were the worst offenders, uh, the ones that would almost never succeed. In other words, cliches that were so overwhelmingly common that as soon as readers or speakers note them, they just turn off their attention because they realize nothing important is being said here. I can skip this part. And that is perhaps practical advice for writers and speakers. Definitely practical advice for writers. I think for for people like you uh, who are in the profession of speaking extemporaneously have to come up with things on the spur of the moment. Uh, uh, that might be a cliche right there. Uh, this, yeah. <laughs> this is the thing. Once yeah. you start paying attention to cliches, it can become almost paralyzing. That's right. You it, don't want to utter another phrase because you're, you're thinking it's not at all an original thought. That's right. It will really hobble your spontaneity because <laughs> to go back to what you said originally, this idea that cliches are, are the comfort food of, of language. Which are actually your words, but okay. Yeah. And and we all we all talk about very ordinary things all the time. And because of that, we don't really need extraordinary or creative language to talk about ordinary things. We need ordinary language. Clichés are ordinary language. But they become clichés and, and take on this negative association when – your writing or your speech calls for something a little bit more creative and you're not you're not there with it and thereby pass up an opportunity to say something original to be impactful yeah, yeah. Oh, i don't like that word impactful but sure go okay. ahead yeah yeah I mean, you know we all, we all have our our peeves <laughs> so i i will try to refrain from expressing any more of mine <laughs> okay so you have this scoring system and how did you draw from the world of cliches and begin to measure the frequency of their use? A lot of different ways. Uh, First of all, I looked at a few books that were called Dictionaries of Cliches. I also started paying very close attention to all the things that I read and all the things that I listened to. Once I had a, a phrase that I wanted to evaluate as a possible cliche, then I had a gigantic database uh, provided by my publisher, Oxford University Press. Uh, the database is called the Oxford English Corpus. It has 15 billion words in it. So it has probably at least one example of every word that you can even imagine. And for words that are extremely common, it has hundreds, thousands, even millions of examples. So that gave me the statistical basis on which to evaluate how frequent is this cliché in relation to other clichés of its kind. And that's how I developed the scoring system. And we talked about it being from one to five, but did you find the most used cliché? Well, I won't say that I found the most frequent cliché in English because it's possible that I completely overlooked it and we've already used it three times in this conversation. (laughs) Um, But I think today the most frequent one is probably going forward. Going forward, Uh, okay. And... uh, I think what's interesting about that one is that it's relatively new because people used to say in the future or at a later date, but now everything is going forward. And you slice it away from the phrase and the phrase becomes stronger. Going forward, we need to take out the trash. It's a much more, I'm sorry to say this, (laughs) impactful thing to say, we need to take out the trash. I agree. Yeah, Yeah. I I agree. There's Uh, an elegance to the simplicity, the cliche-less phrase. 
Yeah. So where does the word cliché come from? What does that mean? Uh, it comes from French, and actually it, it's very appropriate for its origins. Uh, this goes back to the days of typesetting, before text was, was generated with computers. But in the days of metal typesetting, a cliché was a made-up phrase that occurred so often that typesetters kept all the metal in that phrase together as a single piece because they knew they, they would have to use it again. So it's a French word. And speaking of other languages, is there any sense that there are more cliches in English than in other languages? Or is this a kind of universal human condition? It's certainly universal to languages. Uh, I haven't come across a one that, that isn't riddled with cliches, uh, to use a cliche <laughs> to describe that. Um, <laughs> It's likely, though, that English has more cliches because English has a larger vocabulary than many other languages. So I suppose that gives us more possible combinations. Do cliches change a lot over time? They, they do. Interestingly, uh, the best dictionary of cliches that I looked at was published in the 1940s. By uh, uh, It was written by Eric Partridge, an uh, Englishman who's a very well-known lexicographer. And what surprised me about that book was that many of the phrases he identified as cliches are not even used in English anymore. Oh, give me some uh, examples. There's one, all the world and his wife. The ring a all bell? All the world and his wife? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Now, that doesn't ring a bell for me. Uh, no. I don't know where it came from, but uh, for someone who happened to be as widely read as him, might might still know it. An interesting one that he has in his book is throw modesty to the winds, which, of course, doesn't sound familiar, but it probably reminds you of what we might consider another cliche today, throw caution to the winds. Uh, hmm. So that may be a case where one cliche died, but before doing so, inspired another, which, uh, which has taken its place. To go back to all the world and his wife, if you're curious what that means, it says everybody from a mentioned village, town, city, district. So that would be like everybody and their dog. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing is there that it, if a cliche dies, if it served a useful purpose, which that one clearly did, another cliche will have arisen to take its place. Did you come to like or even love a particular cliche? I tend to like cliches when they're relatively new, because at that point, people don't generally consider them cliches yet. They're, they're just clever idioms. Uh, and one that's relatively new, although it's it's probably on its way to becoming overused is the elephant in the room. What I like about that is it's such a graphic image. Uh, mm. There's hardly any room you can imagine being in in which there is also an elephant. Like like so many idioms, though, it works so well that it becomes a victim of its own success and it becomes diluted uh, and therefore not as, to use your word, impactful as it once <laughs> was. <laughs> You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking with uh, Orrin Hargraves from the University of Colorado at Boulder, who's written, It's Been Said Before, A Guide to the Use and Abuse of Clichés. There's a section of the book called You Too Can Prevent the Spread of Clichés. What would be your best piece of advice? For writers, uh, it's actually a much easier job. What writers need to do is edit their work, and that gives that gives any writer an opportunity to spot cliches and consider whether there's a better way of expressing the idea there. That is to say, if a phrase came too easily, perhaps reconsider it? That's almost always the case. The, okay. the, the first phrase that comes to your mind probably is a cliche because they, they have this infectious element. Uh, mm -hmm. The more you hear them, the more you use them. The more you use them, the more other people hear them. They, they become like a virus in language. So the thing that comes into your mind first is very likely to be a cl cliche. And the question you want to ask yourself then is, is this really the best way to express this idea? Or would I 
be able to make my, my idea clearer or more interesting to the reader if I used a more original phrase. So, uh, And we've all, as readers, had the experience of reading a beautifully original phrase or description of something that happens to us every day and seeing the world anew. That's the power of avoiding cliches. Sure. That's what I would like to see happen with anyone who, who reads or buys my book, that they will learn to write or at least edit more mindfully and carefully than they did before. It's much harder for speakers yeah. uh, because they give you thinking time. If you can spill out a cliche, that does you, you don't need to think about cl- that cliche because you know how it works and you've used it many times. And so your mind can be going ahead to the next thing you're going to say or the next question you're going to ask. I see. Whereas if you're having to encode original uh, creative speech – you don't have that time to think ahead, uh, and you'll either have to talk more slowly or you'll have to lard your speech with a lot more uhs and hums and so forth uh, that, that people in general don't enjoy. Orrin Hargraves is a lexicographer at CU Boulder. He's also past president of the Dictionary Society of North America. His book is It's Been Said Before, a guide to the use and abuse of cliches. He spoke with us in 2015. Lopsided victories happen in sports, but when it comes to high school basketball, it happens a lot. So officials have a new rule to promote sportsmanship. It's called the Mercy Rule. But as CPR's Vic Vela reports, it's getting mixed reviews. Basketball's a fun sport. There's cheerleaders, it moves super fast, and those dramatic buzzer beaters to end a game are always thrilling. But for some games, that buzzer can't come soon enough. Araceli Hernandez plays for University High School in Greeley. Her freshman year, they won just two games and got blown out a bunch. Like, I remember I would go home and talk to my mom and be so upset about it. Like, it just, like... Hurt you like it hurts you as an athlete because you know like nobody wants to lose, but I mean somebody has to in the competition. And often teams are losing by a lot. Just listen to some of these scores from recent years: Sterling eighty-six, Venture Prep seventeen, the Far Northeast Warriors one twenty-seven, Thornton fifty-three. Burt Borgman of the Colorado High School Activities Association says about 20% of games ended with at least a 35-point difference last year. Now he says Chassa is trying to protect teams from that kind of humiliation. I don't think I know anybody in this world that likes bullies. And uh, sometimes you wonder, are kids being bullied on on the basketball court when they're being beat by 67 points or whatever? This year, Chassa has put in place something called the Mercy Rule. Basically, it shortens a game where one team has an insurmountable lead by keeping the game clock running in the final quarter, even if the ball goes out of bounds. The hope is that it will curb some of these humongous scores. But it's led to a moral debate around whether strong teams have a responsibility to show mercy on the weak. Not everyone thinks so. Sean Shepard's son plays basketball for Resurrection Christian School in Loveland, a team that usually scores a lot of points. Let it roll. No running clock. Winner's the winner. The loser's the loser. You don't need to show quarters. You don't need to show mercy. It's a sport. So strong survive. The weak go home. 
But most high school sports have some sort of mercy rule. And until this year, Colorado was in the minority of states that didn't have one in basketball. On a Chassa survey, coaches were split about whether adding one is a good idea. Matt, no, Maddie's going to post today. Maddie's going to post today. All right. Sarah Wilt lost a lot of games badly in her first year of coaching at University High in Greeley. This year, her team's really good. Wilt says she doesn't support the rule change because she thinks it carries a stigma when kids say they got mercy during a game. And you can call it a sportsmanship rule, you can call it whatever you want, but in the end, that's still what you're going to tell people when you get back to school the next day. You know, the moment those words come out of a kid's mouth, I think they see it as a bigger defeat than even just getting beat by a really good team. Chassa held off on instituting the mercy rule last year to see if coaches could police themselves during lopsided games. But that didn't happen. And that's not lost on Rick Harris. He's trying to turn around a girls' basketball program at Smoky Hill High School in Aurora that didn't win a single game last year. He says it doesn't bother him when his team loses badly. It's how the other side behaves. Things that bother me is when a coach is up by a considerable amount and he's still pressing an inferior team. That bothers me. Bruce Dick has been called out for running up the score as coach of Resurrection Christian School, but he says that's unfair. And he doesn't think a mercy rule teaches varsity players in particular anything about the real world. You know, a lot of times you're going to come in second place in the interview. How are you going to handle it? What are you going to do? How are you going to get better? And I think the mercy rule kind of bails... Uh, certain situations out. But Borgman, the Chassa commissioner, says the mercy rule embodies what young athletes should take away from sports. One of the greatest educational lessons athletics is able to teach is compassion. Compassion, respect for your opponent, the camaraderie of uh, two people that are on the floor playing against each other, each of them doing their best. Shakespeare said, sweet mercy is nobility's true badge. Shakespeare probably didn't know anything about a jump shot, but his words are exactly what Chassa believes the mercy rule is all about. I'm Vic Vela, CPR News. This weekend, the Boulder Philharmonic gives one of the first performances of a new piece by one of America's best-known composers. That's a new composition by Philip Glass. He's written symphonies, operas, and film scores. This is from a recording of the very first performance of the piece in September. It features pianist Simona Dinnerstein and a chamber group in Boston called A Far Cry. This weekend, the Boulder Philharmonic's regional premiere will again feature Dinnerstein at the piano. Glass composed this piece specifically for her.
The concert is Saturday night at Mackey Auditorium in Boulder. You can hear it live on CPR Classical starting at 7.30 with host David Rutherford. Thanks for joining us today, and thanks to Michael Hughes, Stephanie Wolf, Nathan Heffel, and Alexandra McMahon. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.